Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. So when Jason Kenney resigned, I started asking around for people to talk to who could give me some insight into what happened and what it all meant for Canadian politics. People who were in the room, people who are part of the movement and know some of the key players. That's how I got in touch with Shiv Ruparel. Shiv was born in Alberta. He's worked in politics there, both at the municipal and provincial level. He knows a lot of people in Alberta conservative politics, in Ontario conservative politics, and he's currently working in the federal campaign. He's in the Sheree camp. In our conversations, Shiv challenged my notions of a quote-unquote conservative Canadian. He's in his 20s. He's an environmentalist. He's pro-transit. Shiv is someone trying to impact Canadian politics, actively engaging in all aspects of the political and democratic process. We talk a lot on the show about things that are broken. I wanted to hear from someone who's young and optimistic about Canada's political future. Let's get into it. Hi, Shiv. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Fatima. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with conservative politics. For sure. So I guess the, the most important thing to know is that I'm a proud Albertan, born and raised. Um, I grew up in Calgary and I went to school uh, just outside the city around Okotoks to Winton area in southern Alberta. You know, in terms of my conservative politics involvement, I'd say I got involved at a pretty young age, um, around grade 11 or grade 12 when I was in high school. And at the time, there was a lot of controversy um, during the Prentice government around GSAs, Gay Street Alliances. And so I kind of got involved in terms of forming a bit of a coalition with students from other schools in the area to help lobby the provincial government to make sure that GSAs would be permissible in any kind of Alberta school. And through that lobbying, that was a successful is actually how I got involved in the party at the provincial level. Um, and it got me really interested in conservative politics. I guess I'd also note that, you know, in Alberta at the time, you know, the PC government was a 40-year dynasty and uh, being a conservative was almost a de facto. It was kind of a, it was kind of a given. So that was my main entryway uh, provincially. Um, you know, I got involved uh, later on, you know, during summers from university, um, uh, working on the merger of the UCP, of the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta and the Wild Rose Party. Um, so I kind of got more involved in the merger there on the UCP side. Um, when I then when I moved out to Toronto in uh, 2019, um, I was living in New York at the time, so I came up to Toronto and I got involved uh, in the Federal Conservative Party a bit more around the, around the last couple leadership uh, races, and that's kind of been my foray. And since then, I've remained pretty engaged. So I'm involved in the current uh, federal leadership race. I was involved in the recent uh, leadership review for pre, for Premier Jason Kenney. And in terms of during the day, I mean, my current day job is I work in uh, urban and transit policy, which is uh, which is my passion apart from conservatism, and that's what I'm up to right now. 
you're sort of everywhere across oh, yeah. the conservative and I, movement. <laughs> and I should mention, um, very much on the progressive side, I mean, I was the deputy campaign manager for uh, Mayor Jordi Gondek, who was elected mayor of Calgary recently. That was my last kind of campaign before getting involved on the federal and provincial stuff. And Shiv, tell us how old you are. I am recently turned 25, but I like to tell people I'm 24 still because <laughs> I don't want to be in my mid-20s. No, that's amazing. Like, you're so young and so involved in, in conservative politics. And I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you because there's so much happening right now in the Canadian conservative movement. In the last several weeks alone, you know, we've seen Jason Kenney resign among a bitter fight in his party in Alberta. Doug Ford was just reelected to a majority in Ontario. And then at the federal level, we've got conservative candidates that are at each other's throats, at least seemingly, what, what, what we're seeing on TV. Um I wonder if I could ask you and put you on the spot a little bit to describe what's going on in the Canadian conservative movement in one sentence. That is a tough question. In one sentence, what's going on with the Canadian conservative movement, I would say, is a search for a raison d'etre. Tell me more about that. I think the problem with Canadian conservatism is in, that, is in that sentence itself. It presumes that there is a singular Canadian conservatism, and in reality, there's, there's several, especially from the Alberta context. I mean, even if you look back to, to the original split of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada and to the Alliance Party, and then, and, or the Reform Party later, the Alliance Party, and then the CPC, there's different versions of what it means to be a conservative, depending on where in the country you are from. I would say that regional element is quite important. Um, for instance, in Alberta, you know, we had a quote-unquote progressive conservative government for 40-plus years, but it wasn't really that conservative. You know, we were, we were big spenders. Um, it was populist at times. There's definitely a libertarian stroke. Um, you look at more Eastern conservatism out in Quebec and Ontario and in Central or Eastern Canada. You know, there's a bit more of a focus on balanced budgets. There's a bit more social moderation. But I would say what, what I mean by a search for a raison d'etre is that the modern conservative movement was built out of a rejection of Laurentianism, a rejection of elitism, or a rejection of poor economic and fiscal management. But we are no longer facing the same threat. I mean, yes, inflation is, is a problem, but we're not facing the issues that we had in, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when Canada was a pariah on the international stage in terms of our finances. So, and we're also in a time of, you know, historically, up until recently, historically low interest rates, where it's just expected that every government will spend. So lacking that fiscal motivation and driver, what really drives a conservative party? The answer depends on who you ask, and that's, that's exactly the problem. So let me ask you, what drives you to be part of the Conservative Party then? Like, what's your understanding of what the Conservative Party is or, or should be? Yeah, um, what drives me to be conservative? I would say one of the main things for me is less ideological and more regional. You know, yes, Alberta's been, you know, divided up a bit more. We have two NDP seats, two liberal seats in Alberta right now. But Overall, as an Albertan, you tend to vote conservative, even if you vote NDP provincially, because you believe that the Conservative Party is the only one that will defend the interests of Albertans at a national level to a way that, for example, the Liberal Party of Canada might not. You know, from the outset, as someone who's not embedded in the conservative movement, it does feel like it's in a bit of a crisis, you know, not just in terms of how do you unify the movement across the country while maintaining its individual aspects that you've described for us, but also, like, what does it stand for? Because I'm not sure I can describe what it stands for today. I can see a lot of problematic elements that are surfacing and that are being attracted by the conservative movement, but I don't know if that's what the conservative movement wants to be either. It's very confusing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. I mean, there are core plans that I would identify with. Like, for example, the idea that 
you, you know, we're all for redistribution, but you can only redistribute wealth if you are creating it. I think that's a big rallying cry for a lot of conservatives right now, that you need to have a solid growth strategy. Um, and I think that's a, that's a rallying cry that goes beyond the conservatives. I mean, you've seen, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago, the, the former uh, federal finance minister of the liberals, Bill Morneau, actually came out to the C.D. Howe Institute of all places and saying, you know, I'm worried about the direction of this government, the, fo- the, the lack of focus on growth. I think another big element of conservatism I think uh, this is articulated very well by uh, by Jean Charest, for example, is that it's about respecting jurisdiction. And there wasn't a lot of controversy around it at the time. Granted, this was before the 2014 uh, oil price collapse, so we were in a boon time, but there wasn't a lot of pushback around this. And we were, we were a leader out of all jurisdictions in the Western Hemisphere, North America, South America, um, including some of our progressive cousins to the south of us. But I think what you've seen over time is especially at the federal level, there's been a kind of demonization of carbon taxation specifically that has almost reprogrammed how Albertans think about it. They've come to see it as an attack on Alberta directly, which I would argue is not necessarily the case, but it's been framed that way for an easy political win. And as a result of that, you know, you're never going to see a conservative candidate in this election come up pro-carbon tax. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a problem so long as you have other sound, solid policies to ensure that you're meeting uh, our Paris climate goals. I don't think a carbon tax is essential, but I think it is a shame that it has been framed in the way it has because it gets rid of a pretty important market-driven tool that governments could have used to reduce emissions. But again, to challenge you a little bit, um, I would argue that it was conservative leaders who've sort of turned the carbon tax into that very politicized um, oh, negative I thing. I agree. I know. I agree. I, and I think that that's exactly what I'm saying. I think that yeah. there was there was federal leaders, federal leaders who weaponized the carbon tax in a way that rendered it persona non grata in the in the in the federal public policy sphere. And I, and I think that was a mistake. That being said. The fact of the matter is the majority of, I would say, at least a plurality of Western Canadians, especially in the prairies, are against the carbon tax. And so I think rather than stoking that anger and fueling that resentment, the government would better off uh, be looking at approaches to reduce climate change beyond a carbon tax. Things like infrastructure, public transportation, uh, cleaning our energy grid, etc. Well, it's interesting. You know, you're talking about stoking anger and, and, and you know, these fringe groups that, that might be like anti something that might be good for society that the conservative movement panders to sometimes we're seeing that still right like uh you know we're seeing that in the way the freedom convoy folks have been uh almost appeased by certain conservative candidates like the anger that you see in in Pierre Polyev's speeches specifically plus his like recent end the vaccine mandate bill that he's just tabled these are really troubling viewpoints that that seem to be something the conservative candidates are I don't know how to describe it they're pandering to it and and I wonder if you think that's problematic I think it's problematic to an extent I mean I'm not going to comment on on Mr. Polyev specifically um, although I know that's what you're referring to and I, I know you know in terms of the, the I mean I, I think any federal politician that actively endorsed the freedom convoys in Ottawa, where they were actually breaking the law, um, going against court injunctions, where, you know, we're we're really disrupting people's lives living in Ottawa. I, I think that's not a really defensible position. But at the same time, I don't like the approach of the Trudeau government, which essentially characterized them as a basket of deplorables, to use our American vocabulary. I mean, you use the word fringe, but the question is, are they really that much of a fringe group? I mean, you've seen freedom convoys from across the country well after 
the Ottawa convoy, and there's been crowds, there's been supports, there's been protests in Calgary on a regular basis. And I don't disrupt the disruption to private property, the disruption to to our downtowns, and and you know disrupting traffic flow, etc. But that being said, I don't think the answer to addressing this anger is to call them fringe groups, to demonize them, because I think they constitute, if not a majority, a plurality in many parts of Canada. And I do worry that with the current federal government, they're making the same mistake that the Democrats in the U.S. leading up to uh, President Donald Trump's election, casting them off as a fringe group of deplorable individuals rather than saying, well, what are their concerns and how can we meaningfully address them? So here's where you and I will disagree a little bit, right? Because, uh, you know, When I think of a group saying end the vaccine mandate, yes, we can have like a serious constructive discussion about the merits of vaccine mandates, but it can't just be because a certain group is demanding it. Like we we have to have like a scientific, factual, like nuanced debate about it as opposed to just like an emotional, I want this group's vote. So I am going to take this up as my position, which is what I feel like a lot of conservative politicians may have done, either explicitly or implicitly by endorsing them or standing with them uh, or so forth. You know, you're an organizer, you're in the back rooms, and you've worked with a lot of candidates. Seeing what we've seen in the United States, and, and Donald Trump is used as an example often when we're talking about like the identity crisis that conservative parties are having across the world, what is the right way to meaningfully engage with these kind of groups? It's a great question. I don't necessarily have a perfect answer. I mean, to clarify, in retrospect, I think my answer might have been a little bit of whataboutism. I mean, I I don't think it's defensible to stand with freedom convoyers who are disrupting the public sphere, who 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 are destroying private property. I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think pandering to them is the answer. I would rather say that just to contrast them with the approach of the current government, there's a middle ground to be struck here between demonizing them and pandering to them. In terms of her answer, what is the approach? I mean, it depends what you think is driving the anger. You know, they might be chanting about vaccine mandates, but if you if you talk to a lot of these people, I think they're really concerned about, for example, you know, school closures and they don't they don't have affordable way to take care of their kids, or they're they're worried about losing their job, and so they're worried. And so that, you know, there's there's a broader economic worry underpinning their concerns. I think a meaningful way to address that would be would be would we be rather than going out and necessarily endorsing them saying okay well what public policies can we implement to address the root concerns without feeding into it many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, throughout this conversation, you, you've talked about the West, the unique needs of the West, and how it fits into the conservative movement. Tell me what impact the loss of Jason Kenney is having or, or will have to the conservative movement, both in Alberta and across the country. Look, it was a shock to all of us. Uh, so I was in the room when, uh, you know, Premier Kenny came up and announced the resignation, and there was shock in the room. We were not expecting that result. And the conservative movement in Alberta, as a result, to be fully honest, has been left in a bit of disarray. 
what it means in Alberta versus what it means federally, I think are two very different things. I think that there's been a large media narrative on the national stage that the fall of Jason Kenney indicates that, you know, there's this insurgent populism on the right and there's been commentary projecting Alberta's issues to the federal race. And, you know, this shows, you know, why Pierre Polyev has momentum behind him and we want to reject establishment people. I really don't agree with that assessment. I think it's an attempt by, you know, national commentators to make the Alberta case study relevant to Ontario, relevant to the federal lace. But I, I, I say it's very unique to Alberta. When you look at why Jason Kenney fell, a lot of it had nothing to do with ideology. A lot of it was interpersonal. And I mean, I'll, I'll preface by saying, I mean, I'm a big fan of Premier Kenney. I'm a big fan of many, many members of his staff who I count as, as good friends. But there was an approach, especially in the first couple of years of his government, when there was a lot of members around uh, Kenny's team and different ministers' teams that had a bit of a, a centralizing approach to politics, which is not the Alberta tradition. And when you have to remember that the modern UCP is a mix of an establishment party, the PCs, and the Wild Rose Party, which is a grassroots party where members really matter. And I think one of the issues you had was, you know, there was a lot of staffers who had never set foot in Alberta beyond coming to Stampede, who were Ontario Conservative staffers who came for the first couple of years of, uh, of Premier Kenny's mandate. And their approach was very much, you know, like power comes from the centre, it comes from the Premier's office and, you know, rest of caucus needs to, you know, mind their own portfolios and kind of stay out of it. That approach, I think, rubbed people off the wrong way. Um, there was a change made, you know, like there was a big staffing change. They got a lot more um, great Albertans working in different ministers' offices and the premier's office. But I think the fact remains that there was a lot of people in the party who were holding grudges over the way they were treated earlier, over that perception of, of, of condescension, and it struck them the wrong way. Now, I think that was a big factor. Now, were vaccine mandates uh, a factor as well? Sure. But to frame this as being a populist revolt against Jason Kenney, I think is a, is, a, is a convenient narrative when a lot of it is down to interpersonal dynamics and bad timing. There's an interesting line that um, a mentor of mine um, associated with a big think tank in Western Canada, he says that, you know, the thing with Jason Kenney is that Jason Kenney might be from Alberta, but he's not of Alberta. He's from Saskatchewan, but he spent time in San Francisco in the States. He lived in Calgary for a little bit when he was with the Taxpayers Federation, and then he spent most of his time in Ottawa. So as a result, I think Premier Kenney's approach was very much, okay, let's, let's look at the stereotype of Alberta and govern the stereotype rather than govern the big, diverse urban province it's become. So this is a bit of a long-winded answer to say the link between Jason Kenney's loss at the provincial level and at the federal level, I don't think the tie is necessarily strong. Um, what are the implications federally? I think it bodes poorly for the federal conservatives because one of the strengths of the federal conservatives is having a federal guy as premier of the conservative province of Alberta. And the reality is, whoever the next leader is going to be, just looking at the, at the contenders, they are going to be both from Alberta and of Alberta. And they're going to have stronger links to the provincial party than they will the federal party, which means that even if a policy might rub the feds off the wrong way, for example, asserting Alberta's autonomy and, and a fair deal of federation, even if it strikes the feds the wrong way, they still might pursue it. So I would say it's, it's not great for the federal conservatives. It's interesting hearing you describe sort of what led to Kenny's end in Alberta, because at the top of this conversation, you sort of set out like all the different factions, right, that are trying to cohesively exist in the conservative movement. And I wonder if 
if it, is it a stretch to think that what happened in Alberta is kind of a microcosm of that problem, where there are all these different factions that are struggling to unify under the conservative umbrella? And Kenny tried, but maybe he failed because he had the wrong approach. I, I sorry, you referring to the provincial party or the federal? Yeah, party? the provincial party. Provincial party. I mean. Yes, I mean, factions are are an issue. I don't think there's as many factions as people believe. I think it was more an idea of premise. I mean, when Premier Kenny campaigned, he promised this would be a, you know, he went in this blue pickup truck through Alberta and he promised this would be a grassroots party. And that's not necessarily how he governed. Granted, how you campaign and how you govern are very different. I think it's more that there wasn't a unanimous agreement between the Wild Rose and the PC sides of how they were going to govern as a party. The Wild Rose has never formed government. A lot of those uh, those members, those MLAs, those members of the Legislative Assembly had never been a part of any government before. And they thought that they would have more of a voice, more liberty in caucus than what they did. And to Premier Kenny's credit, I mean, he's a big adherent of, you know, of the, of the, of the Westminster parliamentary system. And he believes that there should be autonomy for, you know, for MPs or MLAs, what have you. And so he let that go on for a while. But I think that it would be less that there's multiple factions and more that the two main factions didn't agree at the outset what this party was going to look like and how it was going to govern. So when the two sides then have very different presumptions, no one's really going to be happy with the outcome. Well, let me ask for your thoughts on Ontario then, because, you know, Doug Ford getting reelected in a majority contrasted with Jason Kenney losing his leadership position is quite stark. And and I wonder how you, as someone part of the conservative movement, is perceiving that. I mean, I think they're completely different. And I mean, and I know I know that there is a tendency and a desire to link the different provincial conservative movements to find an overarching narrative. And I, and I understand that. But I just don't think it's the case. I mean, what did Doug Ford say not just a week ago? I'm not a conservative. I'm Doug. That approach kind of shows you that when it comes to Ontario, I mean, Frankly, Doug Ford is not that conservative, and he's open about it. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an effective populist leader. He's put together more or less a coalition within Ontario. Um, how the PC party governs in Ontario is very different than how it governs in Alberta. I don't think there's a lot of similarities that can be made. But I will note that I think one lesson you could you could look at the two and approach. You know, I worked briefly as a staffer at Queen's Park um, with municipal affairs and housing. And one thing that struck me was how decentralized it was. I think I, mean, I think that the Ford government is one of the most decentralized uh, governments in Canada in the sense that there was a lot of autonomy and power given to ministers. Now, then when you look at the situation in Alberta, the reverse was true. There was a lot of power concentrated at the center in the premier's office which didn't sit well with members in caucus. So perhaps a middle ground would be a good approach or, or you know, giving more trust and more autonomy to ministers might be a lesson to be learned. Another lesson to be learned might be, for example, when you look at Premier Ford's cabinet, they are geographically diverse. You do have cabinet ministers from various parts of Ontario, whereas in Alberta, the overwhelming majority of cabinet ministers are from Calgary. And I mean the overwhelming majority. Yes, there's only one MLA in Edmonton, but there's, there's many other cities and conservative areas throughout the province. So I think that's another lesson you could tie is that geographic diversity is important federally, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit. But even within the province, I think that would be another recipe to success for a conservative party. It's finding a way to piece together the urban and the rural. And I think that Premier Ford has done a really good job of that. 
I found it interesting that, you know, at a Doug Ford's victory party on Thursday night, Scott Moe was in attendance. And and to go back to your point briefly about, you know, how Jason Kenney was the federal guy that had entered provincial politics, right? And, and was sort of a link between Ottawa and provincial jurisdictions. Like, I'm also having flashbacks to, like, you know, Stampede a couple of years ago where Jason Kenney hosted all the conservative premiers and they all, like, flipped pancakes together and, and, and so forth. Is Doug Ford the new sort of link between Ottawa and conservative provincial premiers? No. I think Doug Ford is a link between Queen's Park and Ottawa, but does he represent conservatives across the country? Absolutely not. The concerns are completely different. The context is completely different. I mean, this this harks back historically even to you know the PC governments of Ontario and the what became, you know, like the reform parties at West and the and the whole Manning movement. I mean the problems go so much deeper than ideology. And I think that it's a very interesting... I didn't know that Premier Mo was um, was that was that Doug Ford's re-election party. I find that very interesting because when you look at what Scott Moe has advocated for as a premier, you know, he's involved in the Buffalo Project, the movement to redefine the West, the Prairie's role in Confederation. He's a founding member, Scott Moe. And they, you know, they've come out openly with, you know, a list of demands, the Buffalo Declaration, like what they what they want. And you, you don't hear a lot about it from, from, from Queen's Park. You don't hear a lot about that. And why? Because, I mean... The constituents in Ontario don't really care. So to be honest, I don't see Doug Ford really taking up the mantle. One, because he's like he's not a traditional conservative, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Two, he represents Ontario, the biggest province in the country, and therefore he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to represent the rest of the country. He doesn't need to form alliances or coalitions. He can speak for Ontario and have his voice heard in Ottawa. And three, because there's not really demand for it from everyday Ontarians. Mm. So then there's a void that Jason Kenney has left behind remain a void for for now yes i would say it's a void i would say i would say it's a void that i don't expect the next alberta premier to fill because the next alberta premier will not have had federal experience most likely i mean there's rumors about michelle rumpel but i i I think they're just rumors so i think the void would have to frankly be filled by the next federal conservative leader I mean, we, there's there's not really an equivalent either now or up and coming of such an important federal conservative who is now relevant in a provincial jurisdiction. We just don't see that elsewhere in the country to the same extent. And given that you're not going to see, you know, another federal conservative cabinet minister replace Jason Kenney in Alberta, that will remain a void until we know the outcome of the federal CPC race. I think it's something that political watchers should really keep an eye on is this schism between the provinces and Ottawa that go past ideology or past party color, I think is going to become a real big issue for the next federal government. So so let's briefly talk about the federal conservative race. Again, at the start of the conversation, you said, you know, the, the biggest struggle is the purpose. Like, what is the purpose of the conservative party? What is their reason for being? Do you see anyone answering that in the federal conservative race? Do you see anyone sort of leading and giving the conservative movement in Canada a new vision? I think that Jean Charest offers a compelling vision. So does Pierre Polyev, who for the record, I mean, I don't I don't agree with, you know, all of his posturing around Freedom Con and such. But I mean, he I've, I've, I've met the guy in person and he is nothing like in person what he is publicly. He's not combative. He's very polite. He's a very considerate person. Um, but I think he also offers unique vision. I mean, this idea of freedom rather than liberty, of, of, of American style freedom. Whether or not you agree with it, that is a version of the Conservative Party that he is pitching. It is very distinctive. He's not offering something of the past. He's offering a distinctive vision of the party that many people might not agree with, but you can't argue that it is a coherent vision. 
But I mean, in terms of a vision that folks can really rally around, to be honest, I would say I think Jean Charest is the only candidate that really offers that. In terms of looking at what are the points that unify conservatives and what are the point what are the points that unify centrist Canadians who are not political who might want to lean conservative, I would say Jean Charest offers offers a pretty good window. Um, I also have a lot of respect for you know Scott Aitchison. I think he's had a lot of great things to say. He's obviously not going to win. Um, I think the vision of Patrick Brown. Maybe I won't say much on that, but I will say at the very least what, what, what Patrick Brown is doing is he is bringing in a ton of new people into the party from, from very diverse backgrounds. Like, you know, it's that ethnic campaigning. He gets new members in. That's been criticized by a lot of candidates. But at the end of the day, I think it's good for the conservative movement. because you're, you're, you're swelling the ranks. You're diversifying our party membership, which is good because it makes it easier to win a general election. Right. Like when, when, when the party membership reflects more of Canada, it results in leaders who will, re- will reflect more of what Canada looks like in a general. It's almost like you want a little bit of each candidate into like one person. I, I would love to have like, yeah, like a mega, a mega conservative who combines the best of all of it. It's like a conservative Megatron with the with the elements of each candidate that you've just described. Oh, a hundred percent. But to your point about freedom, I get scared when I hear conservative, you know, leadership candidates talk about freedom so broadly and so blatantly in sort of like a Trumpian American style politics. Because I, first of all, don't know what freedoms are missing. I'm an immigrant. Uh, You know, one of the biggest attractive qualities about Canada is you are free to do so many things. I worry that it's sort of like just like a rallying call to herd, you know, the people who are unhappy right now, as opposed to like real meaningful solutions that Canadian society needs two years after a pandemic from a federal conservative party. And honestly, I, I, I worry that it's just... A political playbook that's been successful in America that they're trying to bring to Canada that might harm Canadian society more than help them. I guess my question is, like, what do you make of when conservative candidates talk about freedom that way? It's an interesting question. So I was working in Ontario before pandemic and I went back to Alberta just for a ski trip like the week like uh, my my benchmark was like when the NBA like stopped stopped playing like that's <laughs> when COVID kind of started and so I was like quote-unquote stuck in Alberta but I just kind of stayed working in Alberta for basically all pandemic I didn't come back to Ontario for a long time um, I spent almost all of COVID out in uh, Calgary and Vancouver and when I did come back the following summer just to visit a family in Toronto I was struck for the first time about just how different it felt to be in Ontario. I didn't feel like I was in the same country. Like, I remember the silliest thing. I mean, when I first went to a restaurant in in Toronto during COVID, you know, you would walk into a restaurant, I think this is the second summer of COVID, and you have to wear a mask to get from the entry door to your table. But then when you get to the table, you take the mask off and you're eating. I mean, I thought it was so silly. And what that underscored for me was, okay, this is a cultural difference on how we view freedom and the rule of government in our lives that is not the same across Canada. And I don't think it is partisan like many would think. The reason I think that is twofold. One, in Alberta, you had a very different collective mentality around COVID. 
both in Calgary, Edmonton, and rural, and, and with conservatives and liberals. Um, it, it wasn't politicized as much. But B, I spent a whole summer in Vancouver. Vancouver is a very, very, you know, ideologically left-wing place. And even there, you didn't even see anything near the same lockdown you had in Ontario. I think, I think BC actually had, um, I know, Oxford University's um, business school. Um, there's like a ranking of subnational national governments and their lockdown restricted this. I think BC ranks globally as one of the most lax in, 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 uh, in Canada. There was a feeling of, of you know, we're, you know, we were going to look out for each other, but government doesn't have a role to, to interfere this much in our daily lives. And I found that really interesting because I thought, okay, there is a cultural difference East versus West and how we view the role of government and what we define as freedom or liberty, which are, which are ultimately two different words. And I think that what Pierre, for example, is onto is he's onto this idea that crosses partisan lines and is especially popular out West that we have had too much of government in our lives, and so you just want to be free from that involvement. Now, of course, I know the argument saying, well, is it fair? Is it really freedom if, you know, if you're not wearing a mask and you get somebody sick and now their freedom's imposed upon? I, I understand all that argument, but I think that for the past few years, Canadians, I mean, we've become so used to having government in our faces every day. And I think that folks in, in Eastern Canada might have been more used to that than folks in the West. So maybe that tolerance threshold is higher. But I think that there is a desire for, quote unquote, freedom beyond the conservative ideological grouping. Um, I agree that there's a danger when you embrace American-style freedom in Canada. I'm not as worried as you, in part, because Canada is a different country. Um, culturally, even in Western Canada, we don't have the same interpretation of freedom. We don't desire individual freedom as much as our collective well-being, even in Alberta, to the extent you do in the States. So I'm, I don't think that that style of freedom would necessarily take off here. But I don't think it's as partisan of an issue as some might make it out to be, to be honest with you. And I think that there's been an unfortunate characterization that, you know, the West distinctiveness or the, the reason the West is upset is because, you know, they don't want vaccine mandates and lockdowns and carbon taxes and they want freedom. I would really push back against that. Like, I mean, yes, I think there is, like I said earlier, that there's, there's this cultural idea in the West that the government should generally be less involved in their day to day life. But I think that looking at, at Western alienation, it's about the structural foundations of our country. Either, you know, you treat a region as an entity. Entity, like in the U.S., so every every state gets the same amount of senators, or you treat it like another version of a proportional house. We have neither. We have 105 Senate seats. You have 24 for Ontario, 24 for Quebec, 10 for New Brunswick, 10 for Nova Scotia, and then you get six for each of the Western provinces, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And then the, the biggest problem I think that you're seeing now raised in the Alberta leadership is our representation in the House of Commons. I mean, I think you covered it on one of your backbench episodes a few weeks ago. I mean, there was a vote in the House on redistribution. I think a lot of Canadians don't realize that though our constitution says that we're supposed to have proportional representation, Alberta gets a very unfair deal. I want to wrap up this conversation with a question for you, because you're 25 years old. You've been involved in politics for such a big chunk of your life, and you still believe in the impact politics can have. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that I'm out here, you know, looking at low voter turnout in Ontario, like abysmal. Yeah, 43 point something percent, I think was the lowest in provincial history. And we don't really have super inspiring leaders right now. We're moving slow on things like climate, a housing crisis. So what keeps you believing that politics can have a positive impact on Canadian society? Why are you still involved in the political movement? I mean, I'm not that cynical because I've seen the impact that grassroots involvement can have. And I can see the changes in real time. I mean, 
this is hyper local, but I mean, you know, Fatima, one of the things that you and I would talk about, for example, is, you know, transportation issues, right? Like I'm, I'm a big transit nerd. I love cities. And one of the main ways I got involved in that was in Calgary. I joined a, a group called by Calgary and I helped kind of found this, this uh, cycling activist organization. And it took a while and it took dedicated time, but we pushed and pushed and pushed. And the result was we got a massive investment in our cycling facilities in Calgary that people thought wouldn't have been possible before. In Toronto, the same thing. I mean, this whole active TO project to open cycleways and, you know, reduce our emissions, you know, create space for active transportation. There was a lot of pressure on councillors and they eventually caved. Knowing that you can accomplish that at a local level, I think, has given me a lot of faith. On the federal level, I have a lot less faith, but I'd say what keeps me going is knowing that there are genuinely elected officials out there who care about their constituents, who care about the issues and are trying their best. You know, you might not always see it in the media, you know, like one move might be a part of a larger of a larger chessboard game, but they ultimately have the right objective in mind. And I'd say being, you know, in the political back rooms, I do see that it's not as cynical as we think it is publicly. It is not as cynical politically as I think we're all led to believe. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, why, you know, I started my career more interested in national politics. And then I got more interested in provincial politics and then local politics, because ultimately every problem is local. And I think that local governments are I, I think our best hope to address, you know, the affordability crisis, the housing crisis, the climate crisis, even these larger Western issues that I'm talking about. I mean, there's been big gains made in, in, uh, on, the, on, the, on the municipal side out in Calgary, or even, you know, looking at another big constitutional issue, you know, Bill 21 in Quebec, laicite. Um, you know, there was mayors across the country who tried to raise money to support a, a court challenge against that bill. So I think what keeps me going is, is, is my faith in a more localized version of politics and my knowledge that there are a lot of elected officials putting themselves out there who think beyond the next election cycle. They don't always get the, the, the microphone. They're not always the loudest voice, but, uh, but they're there. Well, Shift, thanks so much for bringing your optimism about politics to the show. I have lots of optimism and the weather is nice, Fatima. Okay, on that note, let's adjourn. That's The Backbench. Next week, we'll be back with the panel you know and love. Please send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us, backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. Before the show ends, I want to give a quick shout out to someone without whom this show wouldn't exist. Her name is Tiffany Lamb. You may have heard me say her name a lot in the credits of literally every episode until recently. Tiffany thought of me as the host of The Backbench. She literally thought of the title, The Backbench, for this show. Uh, So much of what you hear and how it comes to you has been shaped by her. We have been the two young uh, daughters of immigrant who have been trying to challenge and change political conversations in this country. She is leaving us for a different job where she'll be creating even more incredible content. I hope you'll all follow her on Twitter to learn about all the new incredible content she'll be creating for you, for your walks and your drives and more. You can find her on Twitter at TLMSY. Tiffany, thanks for literally everything. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton and Noor Azria with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Aldshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Back.